This week on The Vergecast, Addie Robertson joins us to talk about the two new antitrust lawsuits against Google. That's a total of three now. Also, Facebook versus Apple ad tracking controversy. Then Chris Welch joins us to talk about the new AirPods Max and what's going on with ProRaw on the iPhone 12 Pro. That's coming up on The Vergecast now. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hello, and welcome to The Vergecast, the flagship podcast for the consumer welfare standard. It's going to get real dry today. I don't know. Technically, I'm on vacation, so I'm just going to admit to everyone that I'm a little less prepared than normal. But it's fine. I'm Neelai. It's fine because uh, Dieter Bone is here. I am uh, your full front page ad uh, expressing appreciation for you and your family instead of condemning you. <laughs> That'd be nice. That's how we're going to save print. <laughs> Personalized Dieter Bone appreciation posts. Uh, Addie Robertson is here. Hey. And a little later, we're going to have Chris Welch. We're going to talk about Apple AirPods Max and some other gadget news. Addie is here to talk about all of the action between Google and the government, Facebook and Apple. There's just a lot of stuff happening in the world uh, from a policy perspective. I want to start where we always start first, though, uh, with a COVID update. As I'm sure all of you are aware, uh, vaccines have started to roll out. The FDA has authorized the first COVID-19 vaccine from Pfizer. People are taking them. They're, they're posting videos and selfies of themselves getting the vaccine, which is amazing. So that is happening. We are covering it. Mary Beth Craig's obviously has her newsletter, Antivirus. The vaccine is not the entire story. Rolling it out is difficult. Making sure people comply with the two-shot uh, regime of how you get vaccines, uh, at least this first set of vaccines, is difficult. So there's a lot to ma- be maintained in terms of data, compliance, all that stuff. The second dose of the vaccine it's going to knock people out for a day. So like it's going to have effects, which is going to bleed into misinformation and that entire ecosystem around vaccines and the internet, which isn't healthy. So we're tracking that very closely. The platforms are starting to remove uh, vaccine misinformation. So Twitter is being more aggressive. There's just a lot of news about the vaccines now that they're out. They're being distributed. They're being taken. People are experiencing them. So we're tracking all that stuff in our science desk and in Mary Beth's newsletter, Antivirus. It's exciting. It's happening. It's going to be a long, slow rollout to getting back to sort of a normal place. So that's the COVID update. Still the biggest story in the world. Our science desk is incredible. Very proud of how they've covered it through this. Hopefully these vaccines get distributed well. Okay. (laughs) On the policy front, Addie, there's just a lot. I, I think we all hoped that we'd be kind of cruising towards the end of the year 
And it, it feels like every state attorney general was like, you know what? We have a couple more ideas for 2020. So the Texas attorney general has announced a, a new case against Google. We've heard there's another one coming. There's obviously the existing federal case against Google. Tell us what's going on. Yeah. So um, I believe it was last week was we're all going to yell at Facebook week. And this week is we're all going to yell at Google week. The background is that in October, there was a very long awaited Justice Department case against Google alleging that it mostly that its search business was anti-competitive and an unfair monopoly. So then, as you said, on Wednesday, Texas and a total of 10 states ended up filing a different suit that took aim specifically at ad tech, which was not really a focus of the original Justice Department case. They announced this with a really intense sizzle reel on Twitter. Texas AG Ken Paxton taking the lead to investigate Google. Investigate Google. 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 Tech giant. Google. 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 The focus is Google's anti-competitive. Antitrust. Antitrust. Anti-competitive trust laws. They made a hype video for their lawsuit. It was so much. And they did it before anybody actually had seen the lawsuit. So people were just like watching the hype video. It's like all we had was just like newscasters saying Google antitrust. And then the like attorney general for Texas is walking over like Google is bad. Google repeatedly used its monopolistic power to control pricing, engage in market collusions to rig auctions in a tremendous violation of justice. I feel like this explains why this there are two state lawsuits. Yes. So that was Wednesday. Yeah, that's Wednesday. That's like the bombastic one. And then today there was a Colorado suit. Um, Colorado and a total of 38 states and territories, including some that had signed on to the Texas suit, filed what's sort of like a Justice Department plus suit. It explicitly is like, we're going to take a bunch of the complaints from the Justice Department, we agree with them, and we're going to add on some more specific things, mostly involving ad tech and um, what are called vertical search engines, which is like the sort of topic specific places that you would go to look for like plane tickets or restaurant reviews. So the the federal government case from October was... Google, you're paying Apple too much money to be the default. You're protecting your default position. You're locking out competitors. That whole realm of Google behavior. The Texas lawsuit that came with its own hype reel is very much about the advertising market and how Google pushes people out of the advertising market. And then today's case, led by Colorado, is also about ad tech, but also about Google manipulating search results to favor its own properties and pushing out the Yelps and the TripAdvisors of the world. It's complicated because the Justice Department case is kind of an omnibus. But yeah, the Justice Department focuses on Google's really big. It has all this power. It works with other companies like Apple, but also with Android device manufacturers to make sure that everybody uses Google for everything, like if you're on your phone or whatever. Um, then the Texas suit is very narrowly. Google has these ad markets. They're incredibly powerful. And it manipulates them in such a way that it and Facebook are just going to absolutely dominate ad sales and take choice away from the companies and like the web pages who are buying ads and placing them. And then the case today from Colorado says, okay, all the stuff the Justice Department said is correct, but we would like to add specifically that it's not just Google making deals with these big companies. There's also, there are these specific actions they're taking that are really taking advantage of and suppressing all of these smaller topical search sites. And also, we're going to add some ad tech stuff that's weirdly distinct from the Texas case. So at a high level, this Colorado case feels like what I expected the Justice Department case to be. I remember when the Justice Department case came out, we're all like, 
you're going after the Safari deal. That's the center of your case. And it seemed weird because the way that we usually think of a Google monopoly is them screwing with Yelp, them screwing with like flight results and, and all the stuff they do on the search results page. And what's interesting to me is these cases really are complementary to each other, broadly speaking, it seems like. Did they all, they all knew what the other folks were doing? They were talking to each other, and did they like consciously split out? You do this, I'm going to do this, we're going to do this, or was it divide and conquer? Did it just work out this way? I, I'm I'm trying to figure out how we got to a place where we've got these three different suits instead of one big ass one, and none of them are like identical to each other. So there was a lot of speculation that the Trump administration was trying to really rush out a Justice Department case before the election and that there were cutting corners and just trying to get the thing that was like a big, broad slam dunk. Here's why Google is bad. And I sort of buy that now because the case that Colorado brought is so I mean, not only because, yes, that that makes sense, but also because the Colorado case is so much we're going to talk about these things, but we're also going to tie in a bunch of more specific sort of wonkier issues that require a little bit more time to explain. I'm not really sure what's going on with the Texas suit, honestly, like I'm, I'm kind of confused on that one. The other weird thing is that the Justice Department case was just a document. And both of these state cases are very heavily redacted. Sometimes to a kind of hilarious extent, like you'll read there someone's making an analogy and they've blacked out what the analogy would be. Yes, because the analogy is like for, for Google, the analogy is it can really only be very obvious mafia references. <laughs> <laughs> like at the end, like Google is so big in the ad market that they're like, it would be like if you didn't pay the mafia don and then the mafia don came to your website and broke its knees. And it's like, well, that's not so much of an analogy. There was also a Star Wars reference uh, that got redacted. Yes. So the Texas case has um, apparently they cut this deal with Facebook that was to their benefit and they had called it something that's named after a Star Wars character. The redaction shows it seems to be pretty sh a pretty short name, which doesn't oh narrow God. it down very much. But it's redacted. We were all trying to figure it out. Yeah, it was inspired by a Star Wars character, but not necessarily. So people were coming up with all sorts of droid names that were like G2F2 because like Google and Facebook together. I feel like they redacted that on purpose just to make tech journalists pay attention to their filing. <laughs> it's just like a little psychological warfare in the heart of the Texas lawsuit. I have like two... One is like an actual legal strategy. Why are there three cases? Why do they're split in this way? And the other one, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do the simpler way first. So if you think about Google, what a problem that Dieter and I have as we think about like organizing our team is often someone will say to us, you should have a Google reporter. Hmm. And I'm like, great. So you want an ad tech reporter? And they're like, no, what we mean is an Android reporter. And I'm like, great. So we're going to do a search. We're going to have a Google search reporter. And Google is so big that it is actually impossible for anyone to say they cover Google. And if you just kind of look around at the industry of reporters, the people who cover Google actually only the best ones only ever really cover a narrow slice of Google. So I think we're very good at Android. We do not spend a lot of time in the weeds of Google search. Mark Bergen at Bloomberg is really good at like Google search and Google's business deals. There are reporters, Julie Alexander is really good at YouTube, but the influencer side of YouTube, not the technical licensing side of YouTube. It, it's just a gigantic company. It's just true of all of them. It's true of Amazon. It's true of Apple. Like you name it. They're so big that you can't just like take one shot at them. Even if you just think about it in the most simplest way, which is how should we write about Google? Who should do the work? It turns out you need 45 people just to think about the whole scale of Google. You combine that, I think, with just the standard life cycle of a lawsuit, 
which is that over time they get smaller and narrower, right? The, the first thing Google is going to say is you should throw out some of these claims against us. And the judges, the judge's instinct is, well, I don't want to just, I don't want to do so much work. So I'm going to throw out the bad ones. Uh, the prosecution is going to agree to throw out the ones that seem the weakest. You know, they're going to, they're going to feel out the judge. They're going to feel out the process and they're going to stick to the, the best ones. And so if you just have the one huge case, your ability to say any one of those things is the strongest just naturally over time drops out. So then you end up with three cases that are pointed at different chunks of Google and they they can be focused on those as each of those chunks is their own strongest case, as opposed to the justice department having to staff a case that's about Android and about search and about ads. And I like the ad case, we can talk about ad tech at a pretty broad level. It is very confusing. Our, the chief revenue officer of Vox Media, Ryan Pauly, his line about ad tech is it's complicated because everybody who works in ad tech needs to stay employed. <laughs> right. Like it's a it's an employment program for the ad tech vendors to keep it complicated and keep the jargon high. He thinks it's very funny. But I don't know that a judge or jury is going to be like, I'm excited to dive into the vagaries of programmatic advertising and header bidding. And Google owns... You know, at every part of that stack, Google is in the, the one or two position in the market. And every one of those things is a place where Google can act anti-competitively or in the case of this lawsuit, be accused of colluding with, with Facebook. So that's just one whole complicated, weedsy argument that might fail. Like, it might just hit the rocks of complexity. And if, you, you're, if you're just like failing there, are you making any headway on the Google killed Yelp argument? If you fail there, are you making any headway on the default search on the iPhone argument? So there's like, I think there's just a good strategic reason to keep them as three separate cases and also keeps Google having to fight on three fronts. But at the same time, Addy, I think we talked about this a couple months ago, we've just seen Google's responses to these cases. And it, it's, they're very much the same. It's like, well, everybody likes Google. Don't you like the search results being better? Why would you want to ruin this? And it's such a great argument in response. And I'm not sure that any of these lawsuits really, they don't really address the fact that people do want Google to be better. And sometimes that looks anti-competitive. I mean, I keep going back and forth on, so yeah, Google had put out this blog post and it's like, we've gotten so much better here. Look at what happened if you search for bread in 2000 versus 2020. <laughs> and in 2000, it's 10 links. And in 2020, there's, it zooms in on all the different parts of the screen. You've got the box that tells you whether bread is good for you and where you can buy bread and bread recipes. And then the weird thing is that if you read the lawsuit from today, they kind of make the same argument in reverse, which is Google. It used to be 10 big, 10 blue links. If you searched for bread, you'd just find bread stuff. Now, if you search for it, we're going to map out this diagram on the page where you're going to see, oh, there's this box where Google's put its own like reviewed restaurants for bread. And uh, you have a bunch of ads for bread stuff. And then you have all of this other stuff. And then way below the fold, you're finally going to get those 10 blue links. So they're, both sides are basically making the argument that Google search has either become way better or way worse because of all the stuff Google is doing. I think one of the, the, the more complicated things to, to pull apart there is there are some things Google may or may not have done that are just flatly illegal, right? If they actually are colluding with Facebook to monopolize the ad market, that, that's just illegal. Like We don't have to get into the weedsy conversation about antitrust law standards or whether we should change them or whether prices went up like that kind of collusion between two of the dominant players is just flatly illegal. And so they'll just dilute. I mean, they have to, there's some question marks about what they actually did because of the redactions. But if the government can prove that case, it's just legal. On the other hand, there's some parts where making the product better feels very anti-competitive. 
And the question is whether whether feelings are illegal. <laughs> they should be. The lawsuit from today, it makes some one of the things that is nice about it is that it makes a lot of very specific claims about why specific things are bad. Like its argument, broadly speaking, is in areas where Google isn't really competing with anybody like restaurant sites. If you're a vertical search engine, you get to put your name to your results and like make clear that people know this is where their results are coming from. But if you're in an area where you're where they actually have a vested interest in maintaining dominance, like local like business results, then they're going to make it very difficult for people who are reading links to tell that they're coming from somewhere like Yelp or TripAdvisor. And because of that, they are preventing these sites in areas where they're specifically trying to compete from basically building brand recognition. And you can argue that, yeah, there are like reasons why Google would want should do this and that it is not that it does boil down to feelings, but it's at least more specific than the general like Google. They put its own it puts its own stuff in boxes because that's the best stuff. Yeah, and I think that I mean we have another fiery statement from Yelp in our inboxes. We always do. I can read it to you. Eight weeks ago, the United States Department of Justice brought a historic antitrust suit against Google. This morning, a bipartisan group of thirty-eight state attorneys general has filed with their own suit, zeroing in on how Google manipulates its search results to illegally maintain its general search monopoly. It goes on to say, this is arguably more significant than previous lawsuits in that it strikes at the foundation of Google's dominance, its search results. For nearly a decade, Yelp's small public policy team has openly advocated for heightened antitrust scrutiny of Google's behavior. It is gratifying to see Google finally brought to justice for this specific conduct. And I think that really cuts at what we've been talking about, which is there are a lot of places you can focus your scrutiny of Google and I honestly think search results and ads are that's Google's business and a lot of stuff around like whether they pay Apple too much money to be the default. It, it just feels and we talked about this when the first case came out. It feels like a sidelight to Google controls all the advertising on the Web. And importantly, the search engine results page delivers a lot of traffic around the Web. It is a fire hose of traffic. And when Google changes it, it changes its mind about where that traffic should go. Companies literally succeed and fail. And when they change their mind about how that information should be displayed and where it should come from, companies like Yelp can just get knocked out of the game. I think the question is really, you know, the specific harms listed in the suit, they do get to the question of, has anyone been harmed? Like the companies might have been harmed, but have consumers been harmed, which is, remains the standard. And that's, I think all these cases are fighting against that standard because I think a lot of consumers are going to say, well, we just use Google and it, it keeps getting better. Addy, one question I did have, there's this lengthy digression into WhatsApp, and it's connected to the Google and Facebook colluding. And we usually think of Google and Facebook as, you know, hardcore competitors, especially in advertising. What is going on with this WhatsApp story? Uh, that's an excellent question that is confusing lots of people, actually. Um, our colleague Russell Brandom wrote a good piece about it. Basically, the gist is that the lawsuit contends Google, as part of its like illegal collusion with Facebook, cut this deal that lets it advertise against WhatsApp messages, WhatsApp being an encrypted service. So the argument it seemed like was that Google cut this deal that lets it look through WhatsApp messages the way that it can, quote unquote, look through Gmail messages, like scan them to target advertising. As Russell explained, this doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. It's not clear how they would be able to access WhatsApp messages. And it's not clear if they're 
sort of a speculation that maybe the idea is that if people are backing up their WhatsApp messages to somewhere like Google Drive, that actually the deal is that they can access that. But if that's the case, then it's already on a Google service. It's sort of strange and confusing. But the problem is that they've redacted this pretty heavily. And so it's possible that there is a reasonable explanation for this that we just don't know. And that's going to be one of the interesting things to watch. Can I ask a really stupid question? We're not dealing with matters of national security directly. Why does this stuff get to be redacted? Why, like, what's this, is it, is it like it's straight up competitive reasons and they don't want to be punished for having a lawsuit filed against them because it would tell their competitors something? Or is there some other reason that like all this stuff gets redacted? Yeah, I think it, it, it all depends on where the evidence comes from and how it was, what the agreement is between Google and the prosecutors to get it. So if the evidence was filed under seal or there was a discovery process under seal, the prosecutors can't break the seal. If like, you don't negotiate with the person you're filing a lawsuit against. Right. You're not like, hey, I'm about to file a lawsuit against you. What would you like me to redact? It really depends on how you've located the evidence. So some of the evidence, for example, in the House antitrust investigation was filed under seal, right? They asked for the the stuff. They didn't want to subpoena the companies. Remember, this was like a big, dramatic piece of the puzzle. Like, how aggressive is this going to be? We're going to ask Tim Cook to appear. We're not going to subpoena him. And then they all like, all the CEOs like jockeyed for position of who got to go first because uh, they didn't want to be that aggressive. So I think here what you're looking at is there's a lot of evidence that's filed. Some of it was likely filed under seal or under an agreement that they would it would be redacted. Over time, I suspect it will come out because the prosecutors don't want this shit redacted, right? They would like they would just like to tell you what Star Wars name metaphor Google is using for evil because that's a great headline for them. So I, I, I suspect over time there will be a lot of arguing about this. But yeah, it, I think it just comes down to how the evidence was gathered. And I, again, I showed up unprepared. So I don't know the answer to that question, but that's the the mechanism underneath it. Addy, walk me through the general argument of Facebook and, and Google colluding. The general argument is that Google was a very dominant advertising player and that it then saw Facebook's dominance and was threatened by it. And so it ended up setting up, again, because of redactions, it's kind of unclear, some kind of secret agreement that would let these companies sort of set the like set the terms for people who are trying to advertise on them. And they're also making a big deal out of uh, what is called header bidding that is trying when they're trying to, if you're buying an ad or you're placing one, that you're trying to think that you're running things through a bunch of different ad exchanges, but actually Google and Facebook are trying to monopolize this market and route everything through a system that basically lets them dictate the terms of how ads get placed. We're so close to having to explain programmatic advertising. And I'm not going to do it. Okay. Let's see if I can do it really fast. So programmatic advertising, this is like the heart of our business. So I should be able to explain it. You know, when people show up and buy ads on a website, they don't just buy ads on the verge. They target an audience. So we actually just had Melissa Grady on Decoder and she did a better job of explaining this to me. But you're Melissa Grady, you're the CMO of Cadillac. You want to target, I don't know, 35 to 50 year old people who identify as CEOs. So you like put in all that data into uh, your ad exchange, you say, go find those people, show them this ad. When you load a Verge web page, all those trackers that people complain about are trying to figure out who you are. Um, and then they go off to another ad exchange, an intermediary server, and they say, hey, this person who's a 35 to 50 year old CEO showed up on this website. Who wants to buy the ad slots on that website? 
Then there's an, uh, a process called header bidding where all the all the ad servers can say, I've got this much money. I want to buy this ad. There's an auction. The ad gets passed through the whole system and gets displayed. It's very complicated. It happens very fast. It's the thing that makes the web slow. It's also the thing that makes all the money in the web. Google and Facebook run the dominant exchanges. When I say Google is in the one or two position at every part in that stack, all of the services that run that set of interchanges, Google has a division or a company or a system that has a one or two market share position in that stack. If you have the one or two position in market share in that stack, it is very likely that you want to preserve it. It's very likely that you make a deal with the other one. And the other one is almost always Facebook. This will actually lead us in the second segment, which is about Facebook and Apple complaining at each other this week. But it's common. That's what they're doing. Uh, it's all it's all blending together. But I, the idea that that Facebook and Google would collude to prevent competitors from appearing, I mean, that there are lots and lots and lots of ad tech companies. They have lots and lots of opinions on this. And this seems like the one where it's hardest to explain to a, a judge, hardest to explain to a jury. But inside of the industry, which is where all the money is, people feel it. They definitely feel it, that it is hard to beat Google and Facebook in delivering and servicing the ad market. Now, whether it be like, we all have feelings about tracking. I, we, Dieter and I get the tweets about the trackers on the verge like every day. We, we get it. But that is the engine of advertising the internet right now. That engine is changing. That's what we're going to talk about with Facebook and Apple. But Google has, I think, been very aggressive at maintaining its dominance in that system, which is where all the money is right now. I think I pulled that off. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I definitely got something wrong, and some ad tech person is going to tell me about it. But so, but the the lawsuit might have gotten something wrong. Like just as when we were looking at all of Google's potential monopoly problems overall, and the first cut was making deals for Safari placement, and then the second cut is ads, and then the third cut is like the thing we expected with what the search results page does. Um, there are probably a million different ways to go at Google for what it does within the ad tech industry. You know, they bought DoubleClick, however however long ago they bought DoubleClick. Um, and it was like an up-and-comer, and then they like took over that section of it. And if you make this case to Google, like, you're in charge. They're like, no, we actually only comprised such and such percent of this the online ad market, and it's only like a third of a percent of the worldwide ad market, or, you know, whatever the, the thing is when you're, you're trying to define the market. Uh, but especially online, they control the important parts. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> they run the they run the exchanges. They run the intersections, and there's probably three or four, or eight other ways to go at them for what their ad tech does. This is the way the Texas case goes. There might be other ways, but I don't know that there's a single one of those ways that is easily explainable. I don't know that that the way that ads work on the internet is so complex. There's no way that you can in you know. 30 seconds even, explain exactly what Google is doing in a way that I think would be accurate and convince people uh, that they're doing it because it's confusing. I mean, the thing that Neilai said is super strong, which is that if they have a bunch of material that's like, they cut this shady backroom deal to do something that they're saying that they're not doing, then you don't actually have to explain ad tech, really. You just have to explain a bunch of damning communications. But because there are so many redactions, we don't really know what they've got. Yeah. We'll see. I mean, I think as the cases progress, they are going to narrow. And that means all of the emphasis will be on one or two things. And I think that will make it easier for everyone to understand. Dieter, to your point about um, how complicated the advertising market is, this is a totally different story. But today, I think it was Oracle put out a report saying there's massive amounts of ad fraud in streaming video because scammers set up server farms to just pretend to be clients 
like streaming service clients. Yeah. And they request ads from the ad vendors. And then they tell the ad vendors that the ads were displayed. And it's like $25 million in fraud from people just pretending to be the Hulu client and Apple TV. And the only reason that Oracle caught them is because there was a mismatch between the hardware and the OS it was reporting to run. Like they were reporting older Apple TVs are running newer versions of tvOS that aren't unsupported. That's the thing that got them caught. Wow. And that kind of stuff throughout the industry is just prevalent, right? Like it's so complicated. It happens so fast. It happens at such a vast scale that you can, you can just set up a rack of servers and pretend to be Apple TVs asking for Hulu ads and get paid out. At the same time, that allows for Google to do things that might not be on the up and up, but because they're Google and they're dominant, they look like the cleanest vendor of them all. And I, that, but that comes back to like, are feelings illegal? Like, right. Like, wouldn't you rat like Google at least will tell you what it's doing in some cases, or maybe they, they have a bunch of emails to Facebook being like, Mark, I think we should dominate this market, which would just be flatly illegal. But some of the stuff they're doing is actually to combat fraud. Some of the stuff they're doing is actually to lock out the shady vendors. And they will say that to us. That actually, I think we should take a break and come back and talk about Facebook because one of the ways you can talk about Facebook and Apple yelling at each other is in the context of Chrome. Part of this connects to the fight between Facebook and Apple. So let's take a break. We'll come back and talk about that. Support for The Vergecast comes from Shopify. Whether you're a huge company or a small crafter trying to make a buck off your hobby, selling online is one of the best ways to grow. Shopify is one of the top e-commerce platforms that you can use to get started. But it's not just online. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. And you can sell wherever, online or with their in-person point of sale system. You can also sell more with less effort with their AI-powered tool, Shopify Magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. You might recognize more brands who already use Shopify, like Rothy's, Brooklinen, Allbirds, and more. Millions of entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries rely on Shopify for their e-commerce needs. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash vergecast. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash vergecast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash vergecast. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Okay, we're back. So the, there's the Google antitrust fight that's happening. Part of the Google antitrust fight is connected to Apple. One of the things that Apple and Google are both doing is they're restricting cookies in their browsers. So again, I talked to Melissa Grady and Decoder. Like within three minutes of us having that conversation, 
she started talking about the world going cookie-less. Like this is what CMOs of big companies are thinking about is cookies on your web browser. So Apple is restricting all the cookies in Safari. They're they're switching their identifiers. They're they're faking out websites. Like they're trying to keep you anonymous. And then they're going to do these labels about data which Facebook is very mad at. Google has said it will do this thing with cookies in Chrome in 2022. Why is it taking them longer? Because every time Google tweaks Chrome to make it harder for third-party advertisers to operate with cookies, they benefit themselves because you are signed into Chrome. So they know who you are all the time. So Google's ad exchanges already know who you are because you're just signed into Google, whereas all the other advertising vendors need to drop a cookie in your browser. So they years ago, when Dieter and I took a briefing with Google about this cookie thing, they're like, we want to do it today. We know we're getting hammered on privacy, but if we make the move... We'll get sued for antitrust. Yeah, the a couple things. One, disclosure, my wife works for Facebook Reality Labs, which obviously is a division of Facebook, so there's that. Two, sp talking specifically about what's going on with cookies and browsers. Uh, the other reason Google will publicly tell you that they are taking their time here is they do actually want to not just break all of advertising, right? There's this system that's happening where the incentives for Google are to, like, keep the web around, and in order to keep the web around, people need to get paid. In order to get paid, there needs to be advertising. So they want to like slowly build a new system to replace cookies that is more anonymous. And so they end up in this thing where there's like a privacy budget, where like how many things is a web browser able to figure out about you before they're capped and blah, 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 blah. But it just so happens that them slow rolling it aligns with their monetary incentive to not get dinged for antitrust and to continue, right? But the same thing applies to Safari and its moves with cookies and also with these new things they're putting on apps, which we got to talk about. It just so happens that Apple making it harder to identify and do advertising aligns with its monetary interests to have people like pay for stuff directly and they prefer pay for stuff directly to Apple rather than have stuff be supported by advertising because that they know that that system like helps other companies that aren't Apple because Apple doesn't want to make money through advertising. Um, now, I'm not saying that either one of these companies is necessarily acting in bad faith, although I suspect that it's like it's not a pure yes or no answer for either one. But often with these discussions, there's like there's a default assumption out there that, oh, Google's trying to screw you or oh, Apple's trying to screw Google or whatever. And from my sense of it is it's like, yeah, maybe, but that might not be the primary reason, but it, it sure doesn't make them sad that it's happening is kind of how I see it. Yeah. I, th I mean, they're competitors. I think they yeah. like competing, you know? I don't think that Facebook and Apple like being in the fight that they're in. So, Addy, can you can you just give us the overview of what's going on with Facebook and Apple? So, yeah. Um, so, Apple, one of the things it's updating with iOS 14 is that if a site, if an app wants to use your sort of phone advertising identifier to track you or personalize ads, it has to ask permission. And naturally, uh, the expectation is that a lot of people are going to say no, which is going to make apps that use advertising take a hit because their ads are no longer seen as, as valuable. And so Facebook, which obviously, as we've just discussed, is a major advertiser, has started taking out full-page, giant, very tasteful ads in major newspapers saying, this is going to hurt small businesses. Why are you killing small businesses, Apple? You're terrible. Two days in a row. Yes. 
I read those ads and it just it's like the idea that Facebook really cares about the, the local butcher is like maybe they do. But it, it's like I don't you don't think about Facebook's interests and like small business interests as being aligned in that way. Casey had a great line in platform where he was like local shoe stores and bowling alleys existed before Facebook. One presumes they will continue existing without Facebook advertising in this way. Like Facebook didn't create the market for this business. It made advertising more effective for those businesses in some way. Here's what I don't understand. Maybe you can help me out. What is Facebook's goal? I mean, it seems like the goal that we had speculated on was that this is a thing that's designed to appeal to the kind of people who read like the Wall Street Journal, that this is like a regulator and lobbyist thing. Right. So so, so the... (laughs) Facebook, we just spent all this time. Facebook and Google operate the most effective, dominant advertising platforms in the history of the world. And they were like, we're going to run these ads in print, right? Like just that alone to me is like shocking. Like if Facebook wants to target there, and it's true, they're running some of these ads digitally. Uh, There was a very funny one at the top of Vox.com in the headline, like gigantic letters. It was like Facebook supports Internet regulation. And then like the Vox.com headline was like, we should regulate Facebook, right? Like <laughs> they're, tar- they are targeting in that way. They're, they're running those ads on Axios, all the places, Politico, all the places that the regulators and lawmakers and their staffs are reading, putting it in print. I, and the goal is to like make it feel permanent, right? The goal is to make it feel big. It's to get the earned media of people taking the picture and tweeting the ad, like to cover it. Like if Facebook rolled out a digital ad campaign, would we write a story about it? Facebook rolls out a print ad. We're like, Facebook took out a... Very strange print ad today. Here's what it says, because it is likely that no, none of you are buying a print newspaper. So I think there's just an element of trying to make it feel bigger. But then the actual ad is Apple is rolling out a change that will make it harder for us to run an advertising service for small business. Step through those gates of logic with us. Apple is going to hurt small business. And I still don't know what do they want Apple to roll back the change? Do they want the government to write a law preventing the change? What on earth would that law look like? Apple, you can't put up a pop-up saying this app collects your information. That seems unlikely at best in the current environment. Like, I don't know what the end goal is except to try to rally up some anger at Apple. I know we know Zuckerberg is kind of mad at Apple all the time. They control a big platform, too. They're dominant. They don't get the scrutiny. Uh, We heard that Facebook is going to support Epic in its lawsuit against Apple. It just – but what is the – what is the goal? Like, I, it's just there's like, there's an empty question mark at the end of it. Like, you're going to rile up all this anger at Apple. It's not going to take the heat off of Facebook. And it's certainly not going to make European privacy regulators prevent Apple from putting up a privacy notice. What is the goal? Privacy has been kind of at the core of Apple's antitrust fight, though, in the U.S. That this dovetails very neatly with the claim that when Apple wants to destroy a competitor, it does so by saying that they pose a security risk. Like it rolls out a thing that lets you watch your kids screen time. And suddenly all the independent apps that have been doing this are a security risk. Or if you are going to run something like Tile, or if you're going to do something that duplicates a feature Apple has decided it's going to roll out, then you're going to have to make, your users are going to have to jump through these hoops where they accept these, oh, this is could be dangerous. Are you going to accept it? So from that perspective, Facebook is calling attention to a thing that has definitely been on regulators' minds. Yeah, I just I feel like the attack on Apple for being protective of its users 
it just doesn't have any political weight to it. And that's what you really need, right? You want the law that says you have to be Apple's abusing its antitrust position. Okay. A bunch of small businesses showing up and saying Apple takes 30% of our revenue, even when we had to shut down our yoga studio and hold virtual classes. Very sympathetic, right? Like every lawmaker is falling over themselves to say Apple's the bad guy there. Apple is telling people that WhatsApp collects a shitload of data and they're already coming after Facebook. Like who? Like just our cast of characters from all these hearings in in investigations in Congress. I can't even imagine like even the cartoons, Josh Hawley, Matt Gates, like they're not going to be like, yeah, we think Facebook is wrong here. They're going to be like, we should break up Facebook. (laughs) That's just like always their reaction to these things. I mean, Facebook can be somewhat optimistic about how its public image is perceived by other people. Like they had a call where they were like showing off a mind reading head, like armband. And they were like, <laughs> clearly people will not think this is creepy earlier this week. There is just the fact, the bare fact that, and maybe this is just 240 chess, uh, but the labels getting rolled out on apps, the nutrition labels saying this is all the data that's being collected by apps, um, naturally would lead to a huge round of stories of everybody just going to look at the labels and being like, wow, let's compare the things that are being collected by all the apps and Facebook collects a lot. Holy crap. But now the story is Facebook is angry about this. Here's their ad saying something about small business. Like all, it, they've successfully muddied the waters and prevented just a pure round of stories saying Facebook collects too much information. Except that now we're also talking about that because they put up these ads. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. <it>. All right. <laughs> I I appreciate the fight. I appreciate the competition. I think Apple's doing the right thing with the labels, just flatly. I would rather like what makes a good market? Lots of information. So you're a consumer. You want a lot of information about what you're signing up for, especially when it's free and what you're trading in uh, exchange for the service is data. You should know exactly the terms of that exchange. So putting more information into the market so people can make better decisions, kind of unequivocally a good thing. So I, I'm I'm happy to come down on the side of that one. There's a lot more to come. Hopefully it doesn't come in the next two weeks because I think everybody <laughs> would like a break from 2020. Um, but Addy, thank you so much for running us through it. I, it feels like policy coverage into next year uh, is going to be fast and furious. So I expect we'll be talking to you a lot. Thanks. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. Speaking of Apple, we're going to talk about these headphones with Chris Welch. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N 
Podcast.com. We are back. Chris Welch is here. Hello, Mr. Welch. How are you? Hey, it's good to be here. So let's talk about you. You you reviewed the AirPods Max and then uh, iOS 14.3 with Pro Raw for the Pro Phones cameras came out. You wrote that up too. I am very excited. I mean, who's ready for an hour on raw formats? <laughs> <laughs> let's start with the AirPods Max. Uh, I had them. I played with them. I was like, huh, these are weird. And then I put them in a box. And I sent them to you. What do you think? Uh, well, the smell was gone that you uh, <laughs> that you got from the cushions when you first unboxed them. Someone told me that that uh, that specific phenomenon is called off gassing, which is uh-huh. a wonderful phrase. It is specific to soft materials, particularly memory foams, and that's the smell. And it does fade after a few days. Yeah. That first day, let me tell you, <laughs> I I don't. I, it's the first time I ever heard the phrase off gassing, but now I know exactly what off gassing is. And my God, the off gassing. But it's, yeah. it was gone by the time it got to you. Yeah, so I spent a few days with them, and I think uh, I kind of came to the uh, conclusion that, I mean, first of all, they are a ton of money. $550 is a lot, but it's not unheard of by any means. Uh, and they are just really good noise-canceling headphones. They sound fantastic. Uh, the battery life is decent, uh, 20 hours. And yeah, they've got all the usual Apple tricks, uh, like automatic switching and spatial audio, which I love a lot, especially on these when you're watching movies. But you can also just save your money and get something from Sony or Bose, and you'll be very happy. So you're you're wearing them right now. I can uh-huh. see that you're wearing them with a wire plugged into the side. The $35 wire, yes. Amazing. <laughs> and uh, one of the big questions was, obviously, Bluetooth in, introduces a certain amount of latency. Does the wire remove that latency? Uh, yes, it does, as far as I can tell anyway. Like, I've... I've uh, done this a few times with them. I've uh, made some GarageBand tracks, and those have been fine. Uh, so I think as far as like monitoring goes, you can use these, and and uh, you shouldn't have any latency at all. So in that regard, the cable is nice to have, but it would have been nicer if it were in the box. Is, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, another thing I noted in your review, which was a big question I had just in playing with them for five minutes, uh, they're, they're white. A lot of them, a lot of the parts of the thing are white, particularly mm-hmm. the ear cups and the headbands. You're, you were like, it's already starting to get a little dirty. Is it... Is it just like the normal amount of dirty and then it's flat or is it just getting dirtier over time? Uh, it's definitely getting dirtier over time. You know, <laughs> like these last few days again, uh, yeah, the ear cushions are getting a little bad. You can take them off. But like Apple doesn't really tell you to like wash them with any kind of like soap or anything. They just like say like use water and like a soft cloth and it's about the best you can do. So I would go for like space gray or like the dark blue color. Seems to seems like it would be a good choice if you want to hide uh, some of that stuff. But yeah, white is going to be rough. And the green too, I think, is pretty light. So former Verge creative director James Barham bought them and he was like, I will never wear these outside of my house because they're so heavy. Yeah. He was like, they sound beautiful. He said, I want to get to the sound, but are they heavy? They are pretty heavy. I mean, much heavier than like the Sony or the Bose headphones, but I mean, they're all metal. And so you got to like uh, take that into account. And so that's going to be some weight, like the top of your head doesn't really feel it. You just kind of feel it like on your ears, but it's very soft and comfortable. I think if you like neck problems, it's something to kind of be aware of. But like, as far as just like sitting around the house, they feel fine. I wouldn't want to like walk like three miles in them. Uh, you would probably feel it then. So it's like, it doesn't hurt on the headband after a while. Like they, they, they spread right. it out well. Just like it adds a feeling of weird inertia. Like when you turn your head, it's like, yeah. <laughs> my head's a lot heavier than before. Yeah. But I've got like a huge head and they're pretty comfortable. I mean, they don't clamp too down. I've seen some people don't really like the clapping force of them, but for me, that's been fine. I haven't mm. really felt any tightness or anything like that. One of my friends, I'm just asking you questions. My friend asked me uh, yeah. and I was like, I don't have them anymore. I'll just ask Chris on the podcast. They're made of metal. It is cold outside. 
Mm -hmm. Do they get cold in the winter? There's just a part of me that says these were not designed to leave the house, (laughs) right? They're, they get dirty. They're, uh, they're like heavy. Yeah. They might not be like, if you have a wet finger and you touch a very cold piece of metal, like bad things happen. (laughs) How cold do they get? And is it, (laughs) it's cold in New York. Like, are you asking for a warning label? Like do not lick. Don't stick your tongue uh, on the outside. (laughs) There's a reason most things are made of plastic. (laughs) Like, uh, how in the winter they, they feel usable in the winter outside, even though they're made of metal. I think so. I mean, we're outside uh, shooting the video on Sunday and uh, they were getting pretty cold. But I mean, if it's that cold, you're going to have gloves on. And so I think it's not going to be that much of an issue. Like, I don't really see a case where you would be holding your hand against them for a uh, long period of time. And plus, uh, that's where uh, the dial comes in, uh, which I love Mm -hmm. about these headphones versus like your tab controls that can kind of go crazy in the cold and uh, stop working. Right. Uh, We've seen that from Sony on a few models. Yeah, my I've got the Sony XM, uh, MX, XM, mm-hmm. threes. So we get it wrong every time. When it gets super cold out, these touch controls, they're just like, goodbye, yeah. whatever. Um, but you like the dial. Is it? Does it feel natural to use? And like, you remember what all the little button presses do and all that? Feels great. Yeah. I mean, I hit the stem pretty often. Uh, the uh, headband, that is, just because it's mm-hmm. so close. But I think over time, that would go away. But yeah, it's easy to find and works. Yeah. I, I, I think physical controls, especially for something you can't see, much better than touch. Like you just like locate the button and go. Sure wish there was a power button though. Speaking of physical controls, there's been a lot of confusion over like the battery situation when they're outside the case and Apple hasn't been super talkative about it. Yeah. Real briefly, can you like talk about what that controversy is with the the battery situation? Because like put them in the case, they go low power. But if you don't put them in the case, people are experiencing different rates of battery drain if it's just like sitting on your desk. Yeah, so when they go in the case, they go into a super low power state, which is pretty much off as far as I know. But when they're out of the case, if you put them down like on a table, they'll turn off within, I think, a few minutes or not fully turn off, sorry, go to sleep or to like a light form of sleep or they're still connected to your iPhone, but they're not really doing anything. And as far as I can tell, they can sit there for a few hours and only lose like two or three or four or five max like uh, points of battery. And so it's not like some massive drain overnight. But I think a power button would have solved a lot of this confusion. How do they sound? Uh, they sound fantastic. I mean, I think uh, they sound better than your Sony and Bose, of course. Not by like a huge, massive margin. But if you're someone who cares about audio, I think you're going to notice. Do they sound better than the Sony and Bose when you are moving around? Um, depends how much, how closely you listen to your sound when you're walking around. Well, this is what I'm asking, right? Like yeah. the jump from crappy headphones to good headphones in every situation is noticeable to me, right? Mm-hmm. So your standard pack-in Apple earbuds, earpods, right. I think sound horrible. If you buy any reasonably good set of headphones, no matter what situation you're in, you're like, that was an improvement. Yeah, I mean, they all sound good, I would say. Like the Sony and the Bose and these all sound fine. Uh, and these sound good. I mean, they're not like the best headphones I've ever heard in my life, but they're only $500 and not like a $1,200 pair of like open back headphones. So, uh, but they sound great. I wish that Apple had come up with something more than Apple music and like wireless AAC audio. We've been stuck on that since 2007. So, uh, I think it's time to move up there at some point. And, and this is a, a particularly with the Sony's I and mean, you and I both right. got a lot of tweets and incoming, like you have to make sure you use Android and they have a higher quality Bluetooth <laughs> codec. If you use certain services, the iPhone doesn't support any of those codecs. So if you, if you do get to the higher bitrate audio with the Sonys on Android, are they competitive or is it just more resolution? Like, how do, how would you describe the differences? 
I'd say competitive. I think the Sony's always have more bass, uh, which is too much to some people. I think it is kind of bloated, but some people just love that really bass forward sound. And so I think that's where the Sony's went out in terms of like that really, you know, uh, popular sound. And these are a bit, bit more neutral. I mean, not at all neutral. They're tuned in a way that's like that, you know, U-shaped EQ curve where the bass and high is a little bit enhanced, but uh, they sound really, really good. And so I've been pleased with that. The case is obviously the worst thing about them. I, I would love to see Apple like change to like a different case and just send that to people for free. <laughs> I, it is that bad, in my opinion. They won't, but I think they're going to start to sell like third party options uh, pretty soon because it's pretty universal the turn on these. So Mac Rumors found an interview that the design team gave, I think it was in Japan, ran it through Google Translate. And the justification is, um, they think other cases, other headphone cases are too heavy and too thick. And so making this thing out of a single piece of whatever it's made out of meant that um, it would be easier to fit your headphones in a bag. And then having the headband stick out meant that it's easier to pull them out of a bag because there's a handle that you can grab. That was that was the gist of that interview. That sounds like a very carefully construed response to uh, <laughs> a poor reception of this case. But I, Apple is very intentional. I bet those reasons right. are real, and I bet they thought their idea was good. And and every now and again, Apple makes a product for itself that does not reflect any real people in the world. So Apple's design team wakes up every day and they get in their Ferraris. And they drive to the spaceship <laughs> and they walk through like a handful of gates uh, and they go into their pristine design lab. And then normal people are on the subway where it's dirty and their perfectly white headphones just pick up grime from the air. And like sometimes Apple just misses the trick, right? Mm -hmm. Like yeah. my favorite example of this was when CarPlay was first introduced. Eddie Q is literally on the board of Ferrari. And so CarPlay was in Ferraris before it was in Honda Civics like that. He just solved his own problem. <laughs> like, and I, I respect it. I don't I, I can't complain about it. But sometimes you can just see it happen. Like yeah. the worldview of Apple is just like a little too narrow. I think this case is like exactly indicative of that. Like they made a product that they wanted and like to hell with everybody else. And like, you know what? Like I, you can't be mad. Like they're very niche headphones. Like you can't be too mad at the fact that Apple made exactly the product it wanted in this one mm -hmm. ultra luxury category. But I do think it like the question of whether it's worth the money, like it really starts to knock up against, well, other $500 headphones come with extremely nice cases. They come mm -hmm. with the litany of cables you need to use them in every situation. They, yeah. they still come with the, the two-prong yes. uh, airplane adapters. Yeah. I've, I have not been on a plane with the two-prong thing in the past decade, but they still come with these headphones. Yeah, it's amazing, right? I love it. Um, well, if you have an older private jet, oh right, okay, yet, it's, but it still works. Yeah. Um, that's your, you're like the the low tier Bose customer. You're like, well, my jet's like 15 years old, but um, <laughs> that's I don't know how these people think. One big question I have about sort of the case, the ecosystem, the headphones in general. You use them now for a while. It feels like if once again, like just like the HomePod. Mm -hmm. Right. The HomePod, the first HomePod sounded great. And the second you left Apple's ecosystem, it just fell apart. Right. Right. And it just wasn't worth it as a, a smart speaker assistant. And they changed it and they made the mini and they, they've done all this stuff. I feel like this is the same exact set of issues. It sounds really good. I still don't buy that it, it, computational audio is a phrase. We can get into that specifically. <laughs> um, it's just processing. But if you have a bunch of Apple devices, you mostly are at home. 
you're using Apple services, you use Siri a lot. Mm-hmm. These things are going to be great. Actually, can I ask a question about that? Does it support Hey, Sir? Yep. Mm-hmm. He, it it does. does. Okay, mm-hmm. good. Because if it didn't, that would be a huge problem. I'd be like, what? <laughs> yeah. They definitely don't believe in Siri anymore. Okay. Yes, there are two H1 chips in there, so you would hope it would support Hey, Siri. Uh, <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> Do we know why it needs two H1 chips? I didn't really get a straight answer on that. Okay, just, great. Just, <laughs> because he can. It's a flex. Yeah. 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 Because they, they, no one else even has one. Uh, so like, well, <laughs> all right. But like the HomePod sounded great. Lots of weird audio processing going on. Great with Apple Music. Didn't really support Spotify at launch. Like these are headphones. They're obviously a little bit different, but that these are going to sound great. They're going to be the most expensive. If you're in the Apple ecosystem, they'll do all this like fast switching ambient audio with your iOS devices that have motion sensors. Headphones mm-hmm. are on. Uh, planes again, if you got your iPad, if you watch a lot of movies on there, it's going to be a great experience to like watch these and have uh, spatial audio. I wish it worked on Apple TV. I get why it doesn't, but I wish there was like some kind of like software solution to just like tell them like, where is your TV located in front of you here? And so they can kind of replicate that. Can't you just guess that the TV is in front of you? Yeah, it's like front and center. Yeah, that's what I would Can think. Can you just like <laughs> lock it in place? If if you're if you are driving home in your Ferrari from the Apple Design Center and you mm-hmm. walk in your door, your Apple TV is ensconced in your closet Crestron system with all the other stuff, right? And then it's running through a magical system to get to your TVs in, in different parts of the house. So they can't assume that it's there. One of the great I don't know, it's like a I seem to recall this one of the great things you can do. Uh, when you control the entire interface is put things on it like a like software. <laughs> That's what it's called. Couldn't you just say, look at your TV and then just like locate the TV in space and have the headphones have that is <laughs> their own relational reference. There's like a million ways right. to solve this problem that do not involve putting a gyroscope in your TV. <laughs> if Apple were to release a TV of its own, I would say they should put a gyroscope in it because then at least they would have finally released a TV. But I guess the next Apple TV 4K is going to have some weird sensors in there. Yeah, it's just all a U1 chip to tell you its position, right? Like, there's right. Apple has a stack of technology to solve this problem. I think we should bring back everybody wanting Apple to make a real television again. Let's like let's start that up again. Again, I've been there. No, but like <laughs> let's just let's let's get Munster on board. Let's like push. They're a trillion dollar company. Like, why not? Right. They could do whatever they're, they're making self-driving cars, like all the reasons for Apple to not make a TV that we would always cite or hear cited. And the reason that like, it doesn't make sense and they don't want to get in that business and they like their margins and the, the upgrade cycle and blah, 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 blah. None of that matters when you're a trillion dollar company. You can just do whatever you want. Yeah. Like make five hundred fifty dollar headphones with a garbage case that only works in your Ferrari. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let me come back to this home comparison. The HomePod was not successful because nobody cared about sound quality. They cared about convenience. They cared about the wide ecosystem. Do you think this has the same problem? I'm not sure if it's going to be the same problem. I think with the HomePod, people also cared about price. I mean, it was priced pretty high above uh, the Echo and uh, the Google speakers. So this is also more expensive, obviously. But I think people are kind of drawn to it. I mean, they've sold through a lot of these. Who knows like what it means that they're uh, not shipping until March? It's really hard to say what that actually means. But I think people are buying them. Uh, I think there's going to be some disappointment over the case. People are going to be bummed about the cable not being there, uh, but they sound great. Like as a headphone, they are excellent. Uh, the noise cancellation sounds just as good, if not better, than uh, what Sony and Bose are and Bose are doing, which is pretty impressive. So, uh, okay, so that's the AirPods. Mm-hmm. Uh, two other things came out from Apple this week: Fitness Plus hit theater. You, I don't know. It's 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 in the review ecosystem. 
Yeah, so we're we're gonna we're gonna do some long term testing on it. Uh, we um, we we weren't in the group that had it ahead of time, uh, so we're gonna we're gonna take our time and have like actually multiple different people try it out because you know we want like I never exercise. I'm gonna try and what's that like? Somebody else who does exercise more often is gonna try it, and so we're gonna take our time with it. Uh, but I will tell you that right now. I'm less angry about the fact that it requires an Apple Watch. I kind of get what they're going for with that because um, they do really want to, like, introduce the stats on the screen and blah, 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 blah. But it has made me angry all over again over multi-user on the iPad. So when you use it with an Apple TV, the Apple TV pops up a thing saying, who's who's exercising? And then your watch says, I'm exercising. And you tap the watch and it pairs and you're off to the races. And you could do that with literally any Apple TV. Right, you can walk up to one in a hotel room, hotel lobby, boardroom somewhere, whatever. You can use Fitness Plus with your Apple Watch login, multiple users, no problem. But not on an iPad. On an iPad, it's tied to the person whose Apple iCloud account is signed into it, because you know, iPads are only for a single person in Apple world. That makes no sense. Like, just have multi-user inside of the app. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, I mean, that's how it works on the Apple TV. And it's probably, like, it shouldn't it be the same app on the Apple TV and the iPad? You'd think. From what I can tell from people's re reactions to it, it's like, if you're a serious, like, serious fitness person and you're deep into biking and you're using Zwift or, you know, you're already a Peloton person or whatever and, like, you're really specialized and you, you know how you want to do your stuff, this stuff might be a little bit basic for you, but it does seem like it has a really good range underneath that sort of pro level. And so I'm really excited to see how people feel like how accessible it is and if they're going to ramp up uh, on it. And I am also really curious to see how many people just start using it because it's like, it's just part of the bundle. In the same way that like Microsoft's whole argument for Teams is like, you're already paying for Office 365. You might as well. But it's not really part of the bundle, right? The Apple one, like the most expensive one. The most expensive one. But the, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. I think the ones people are going to get. I think it's like, it's funny how diminished Apple one is conceptually from Apple. Yeah. Right. Like they announced it and here's this bundle. And then we like did all the work of trying to figure out what it was. And they just haven't talked about it ever since. Even they've put out like a flood of products for the past. I'm telling you, they got to put the iPhone in a bundle. Uh, speaking of the iPhone, uh, iOS 14.3 hit supports Fitness Plus, supports AirPods Max, also supports Pro Raw, which is Apple's new mm -hmm. camera format. Chris, you've been, you've been playing with it a little bit? Yeah, it's cool. So it basically uh, combines flexibility of Raw. You get all that editing power. And uh, now you get on top of all that, you get all the uh, smart HDR and uh, the other tricks that the iPhone does for its usual shots. So uh, before you'd like choose just raw through apps like Halide, uh, some other apps can do it as well. But now you can actually uh, combine those two for some shots that look great and you can still fix things like shadows and white balance and all that uh, really, really well. So it's pretty fun. Uh, there's still some reasons to use uh, plain raw. Like if you want sharpness, I think it still takes a beat to capture all that data when you're doing pro raw versus like a raw photo is just like an instant capture. So the reason it's like stick with uh, raw versus pro raw but yeah it's neat and it's just part of the software now and it's right there in the camera and you just hit a little toggle uh, the files are huge so you don't want to use it all the time it's like 25 megabyte uh, megabytes per file so that'll fill up your five gigs of iCloud storage <laughs> relatively quickly oh my god if you're um, buying an iphone 12 pro and shooting pro raw and you're like i'm just gonna stick with the basic iCloud plan that's <laughs> i appreciate that that's like uh, i bought a sports car and i put 87 in it yeah. <laughs> uh, some people do it. The Halide folks actually wrote a really long blog post about ProRaw, which 
you should go read it. They will do a better job. They will do a better job explaining the weeds of it uh, than mm-hmm. we will, even if we spend an hour on it. Um, what I found really interesting in that thing that you said about sharpness, ProRaw is still like Smart HDR requires multiple frame captures. So you will right. get a bunch of cool HDR tricks and then you'll get the editing ability inside of a Smart HDR photo. But mm-hmm. a single frame will always sort of inherently have more sharpness in many situations. Right. I, we'll just see. The other thing that you know, we got to use it, I think figuring out when to flip all the toggles is going to be, I mean, it's going to be fun. It's, it's, a, it's a year of using new camera formats. Uh, the other thing they noted, which I think is super interesting, um, Apple is using the DNG format. It's Adobe's format. They're using, I think they referred to them as like little known tags in the format to make some of this work. And they mm-hmm. added to the spec with Adobe. So they've sort of just expanded. So it's a standard file format which is great. You know, if you're like a Lightroom person, you know that every time a new camera comes out. It takes a while for the RAWs to actually work. Yeah, yeah like Lightroom mm-hmm. has to come up with its own set of interpreters for the, because a RAW literally is the raw data off a camera sensor. Mm-hmm. Apple is actually doing that step here. And that's what's enabling them to use, uh, to do ProRAW on all three of the cameras, the wide, the ultra wide, and the tele, um, and the front camera, which they were not able to do before um, because no one, like no one's going to write the iPhone selfie camera demosaic or element. like <laughs> it's not going to happen. Uh, so it's cool. And then the, the thing that the, the Halide blog post suggested, which I think is super interesting is because Apple has now developed a raw format, a thing they could do even to deliver raw formats in all these other places is make their own camera sensors, which mm. is sort of the last piece of the chip puzzle for Apple. And I think that is, you know, we had this conversation on Samsung a while ago when they went to bigger, gigantic camera sensors and they were they were doing their own pixel binning and all this processing. Like Apple can get to the place where it can deliver its own kind of camera sensor and then still deliver a usable raw format off of it because it it doesn't need to deliver the actual raw sensor data to people. So like you just see like it's bit by bit like they just put out this file format. But the thing I thought that was most interesting about the blog post is they if you pull the thread out all the way, like Sony's imaging sensor division falls off a cliff, <laughs> right? Like like Sia Sony the way they said Sia Intel. I thought that was really fascinating. You should go read that blog post. Uh, it goes into way more detail about it. That said, I, I've been playing with Pro too. It's fun to edit. Lightroom doesn't support it yet, so mm-hmm. there's a couple steps before we can I think really push it because I want to use the usual workflow tools that I use. That's the only way I can. About like using editing in Apple Photos is like, yes, it's neat. Not I have no idea. Capable. What's, yeah, like yeah. I can't tell you if it's doing the same thing my other raw photos do because I don't edit my raws in Apple Photos. Dieter, you got some Samsung stuff you want to talk about? Oh, there's a bunch of stuff. Um, so uh, Samsung President of Mobile TM Rowe published a very um, gauzy, hazy blog post about innovation in the future. But there's a bunch of news that was embedded in it. So and uh, officially said that there'll be more to talk about in January, which is a lock that the S21 is going to be announced in January, said that uh, stylus, the, the best parts of the Note experience are coming to other Galaxy phones, which is code for styluses are going to work on the S21 and probably the next Galaxy Z Fold. And also that Samsung intends to make uh, folding phones more accessible in 2021, which means that they'll hopefully come down in price. And the other rumor that's been floating around with Samsung, especially around the stylus news, uh, is that, well, 
they'll just kill the note because <laughs> the note has the note has no reason to exist. It's literally a Galaxy S phone with a stylus silo, and then they like take the opportunity to like rev the camera a little bit or rev the screen a little bit, you know, in an iterative way. But it has been years since the note has been the flagship premiere of brand new technologies that you've never seen before. That now belongs to the Ultra line, if it's a, a phone is called Ultra, like the S21 Ultra or S20 Ultra, or it belongs to the Fold uh, or the Z Flip or the Z Fold or whatever. So like, the, note, the Note's reason for being is to be a big square phone and to have a stylus silo, right? That's it. So if they just like make the S21 Ultra just a little bit more squarish, then you're like, what do you need? Like you don't need Seems it. Seems kind of risky because I feel like sometimes they take bets like in the S20 yeah. Ultra. Like last year, the camera had some focus issues that they didn't really fully fix until the Note. So like right. if you don't have the Note as that mid-year product, then you kind of just run the risk of having some bugs. That's, yeah. Anyway, there's been reporting that that the Note might not be killed off this year. Um, so mm-hmm. maybe that they like, saw the reaction. Maybe they just they do realize that people are very, very dedicated to this brand. And it may also be like there are now like like the regular Note 20 this year was like, I don't know, I don't know. They, like they whiffed on like finding the right mid-range balance. It's really hard to make a good mid-range phone. Uh, and they really whiffed on it on the regular Note 20. Maybe what they'll do is they'll try and make the regular Note next year just the note and it'll be a little bit cheaper who knows we we will see we also got another leak of the samsung galaxy buds pro Mm -hmm. so the way that samsung's headphone parlance works now is buds are the things that go in your ear beans are the thing that sit on the outside of your ear but still sort of in your ear so the buds pro are going to be the buds but they're going to have active noise canceling is that right chris well, they call them the buds live, so they're still buds, like the beans. So <laughs> your, your your description does not work. <laughs> they should have called them beans. Yeah. It would be so much easier. Greatest miss of all time. We saw a leak of the OnePlus 9 that's coming. It seems like everyone's moving their stuff up earlier this year. And then we we did an interview with Pete Lau. He talked to a bunch of journalists. Uh, they confirmed they are, in fact, working on a smartwatch. It seems like they might actually use Wear OS, and they're going to like do something weird to like make Wear OS work better with Android TVs. It's very... Hazy. Um, anyway, I don't know. If, if you look at the leak for the OnePlus 9, it's like, oh, they they they, they made an iPhone. <laughs> OnePlus is really – no, OnePlus is losing its, like, luster. There was this whole drama where they, like, preloaded Facebook on some stuff. Their design is, like – I don't know. I thought the OnePlus 8 was – and 8 Pro was fine, but it didn't feel, like, truly deeply different in, like, a OnePlus way. I don't know. I think that – they no longer get the benefit of the doubt that they used to. And so uh, I'm really going to be curious to see what they deliver with the OnePlus 9 and if they can continue to make a good camera. Because that was the thing about the OnePlus 8 Pro is the mm-hmm. camera was very good. So if they want to stay in that tier, I, they really need to deliver on that camera in 21. Yeah, it seems like they get sidetracked by really strange cameras like the macro camera. And I think uh, the AT had some other kind of weird sensor in there too, right? There was like a color color camera that like did weird color modes for some reason. Just you got a different. Yeah. yeah. How are you going to yeah. make an ad and be like, uh, when you zoom in, we have more pixels than Apple. You got to be like, no, everything's purple. Yeah. One plus. I mean, that, that is what they did. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever wanted to take a picture of a bug very close to the bug? Macro camera. That's what we can do. You can't. I'm telling you. But like a million cameras got, a million phones got macro cameras in 2020. Uh, I feel like, like there was some factory that made 
macro camera sensors, and then they forgot about them, and they were in a bin. And then they were wandering around in January 2020, and they opened door like, oh, God, look at this. Let's sell these off for cheap. <laughs> and that is why every mid-range and low-range phone, Android phone, had a macro camera this year. I mean, I, I buy it. You can just see that supply chain come to fruition all the time. All right, we have gone. I was like, this will be a fast one. I'm unprepared, but we went over, as always. I don't know how long it's supposed to be. You let me know. That's my Christmas present from you to me. Uh, you can tweet at us. I'm at Reckless. Dieter's at Backlon. Chris is at Chris Welch. Thank you to Addie for joining us to talk about Antrust stuff. She's at the Dextriarchy on Twitter. We love your feedback. Hit us up. <laughs> on Tuesday, uh, on Decoder, uh, Ethan Brown, the founder and CEO of Beyond Meat. It's going to be a fun one. Mm. Uh, very curious how that company fared through the pandemic and beyond. And then on Thursday, Christmas Eve, we usually take Christmas Eve off. But this year, my friends, do we have a present for you? The Vergecast HDMI Holiday Spectacular is <laughs> coming out on Christmas Eve. It <laughs> I can't believe we actually did it. It will feature numerous sleigh bell sound effects. Also, interviews. Uh, with David Glenn, the president of the HDMI Forum, uh, Bill Baxter, the CTO of Vizio. Uh, we talked to Samit Sarkar from Polygon about the new game consoles and all the H. I mean, it's going to be wild. Yeah, it's jam-packed. It's it's a it's a holiday spectacular. It is jam-packed just like the HDMI 2.1 stand. <laughs> so, hey! so. It's coming. <laughs> uh, and then after that, we're taking a break and uh, the Vergecast is off until January 8th, 2021, which feels like so far away, but is is coming right up. So Tuesday and Thursday next week, we got Decoder and the Vergecast HMA Holiday Spectacular, and then we'll see you next year. All right, that's it. Rock and roll. Stay home, be safe, wear a mask. <laughs>